Samson. Anyone who's heard of Samson, raise your hands. Okay, so most of you have at least heard of Samson. All right, does, can anyone tell us anything you remember about Samson? Go ahead, Adam. He was strong. Okay, very good. Anything else? All right, go ahead. You're the only one playing along. He had long hair. All right, very, is that, he take yours, Isaiah? All right, so a strong man with long hair. Is that, is that where we want to leave it right now? Anything else? Go ahead. Okay, he was a Nazarite. That's an interesting term. We're going to talk about what that means in just a moment. Well, those are kind of what we remember about Samson. Samson is, in fact, so famous that he's the subject of famous paintings and uh, compositions of music and books, even literature. Uh, So Samson is, is quite well known. But I'm not sure most people really understand what Samson is meant to teach us. And the truth be told, his life is a little confusing for us. Um, and we see, though, right from the beginning, and that, the part we're going to talk about today, he was very unique. Even among the judges, he was very unique. And so the passage we look at today is sort of his birth story, where he came from. And that itself is very unique, and it helps us understand uh, God's purposes for his life. All right, so we're going to read chapter 13, and then we'll talk about what God is teaching us here. This is the word of God. Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now, therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink, and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. So the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, And his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God, very awesome. But I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. And he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O my Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again. And teach us what we shall do for the child who is to be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came to the woman again as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. Then the woman ran in haste and told her husband and said to him, Look, the man who came to me the other day has just now appeared to me. So Manoah arose and followed his wife. And when he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Manoah said, now let your words come to pass. What will be the boy's rule of life and his work? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor may she drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. 
All that I commanded her, let her observe. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you, and we will prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you offer a burnt offering, you must offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know he was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, that when your words come to pass, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it upon the rock to the Lord. And he did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. It happened as the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die because we've seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have told us such things as these at this time. So the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the child grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Mahane Dan, between Zorah and Eshtoal. And there we'll end the reading of God's word. May God bless his word to us as we consider it together this morning. I recently received an email asking if I would participate in a survey. Uh, This was a survey the university was doing uh, trying to figure out how they could make the football stadium a, a better place for a better fan experience. Uh, and so then there were all these questions I was supposed to answer. And we might be, well, why, why do they care about making for a better fan experience? It's very simple, because their attendance is not very good. And after years of training, uh, the fans have learned that nothing good happens after halftime. And so uh, most of the crowd, if they are there, will not come back after halftime. So the idea is, how can we make the stadium more attractive? Now, uh, those of us who are fans would probably say, if you just would win more games, I think it would all take care of it. That, putting that aside, uh, how can we make the stadium better? And this is the problem, because IU football fans tend to be somewhat apathetic after years and years of futility. Always this time of year, the, the articles come out and they get our hopes up, And then year after year, almost without exception, there have been some exceptions, our hopes are dashed, and it's very difficult. Well, we could say, you know, apathy in your fan base, right, is, that's frustrating if you're a football program, maybe. But apathy in the Christian life is not just frustrating, it can be deadly. And um, sadly, uh, all too often, uh, in our spiritual life, we are apathetic. Uh, and we can all admit to this. We don't, we're not hungry for God's word like we should be. We're not interested in ministering to other people. We're not thinking about uh, how can we grow. We get to a certain place in our life and we're comfortable. We're sort of comfortable with the level of sin that we have around us. We can live with it and we just kind of roll along. And this is sort of what we're dealing with in this passage. We have people 
who are not walking with God. And they don't seem to be very interested in fixing that at all. And in, in that context, God could just let them drift off, just go off and do your own thing. But he doesn't do that. And what we see here is God coming to people who are apathetic about their faith. They're spiritually apathetic. And God doesn't leave them like that. He comes to them and he raises up this final judge in an effort to draw them back to faithful service to the Lord. And so as we look at the passage, that's what I want you to see. This is in the outline that's in the bulletin. That the solution to your struggles with spiritual apathy is to turn to Jesus. He is the only completely dedicated servant of God. And he's the only way we can find forgiveness for our apathy. And children, if you're going to draw a picture, so the word apathy uh, just means uh, lack of interest or concern. You don't care very much. So I'll be using that word. You know what that means. Draw a picture now of Samson's parents and listen. What is the promise that they are given? And why is that so important? And if you'd like to follow along with the outline as we work through the passage, you'll see the first thing we want to notice is that sin in your life breeds spiritual apathy. So verse 1 of our text begins, again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's significant. It starts with the word again. That once again, this pattern is repeating itself. God keeps intervening. God keeps delivering them. And yet they keep turning away. And it says that they did evil. And it's evil in God's sight. Again, we often uh, look at our own lives and say, well, I'm pretty comfortable with where I am. I'm sure in their own eyes, they weren't doing evil. They, were, they seemed to be quite satisfied with where they were, but that doesn't matter. What only matters is God's assessment, and God's assessment is they're doing evil. And so his response in the second half of verse 1 is to send the Philistines uh, to oppress them and they do this for 40 years. So I included another map uh, in the bulletin. And if you find the map, you see here kind of in green are the areas where the Israelites sort of uh, were in dominance. They should have been, you know, basically the whole map should be green. But we learned early in the book that they were lazy about pushing out to the boundaries. So they're surrounded, this space is in yellow, by different pagan nations. And so we're talking now about the Philistines. So on the west side of the nation, right along the Mediterranean Sea, these peoples, they were seafaring peoples who had come uh, across the sea and established uh, their, um, their uh, five major cities there. And if you look carefully down, you can see where there's a box that says Samson, and it points to Zorah. They're about 14 miles west of Jerusalem. So that's where this is taking place, and these people who are oppressing Israel. Um, now, what were they doing? Well, if, you, if uh, I put in the outline uh, some of these uh, cross-references, if you look back in Judges chapter 10, verses 6 to 7, uh, that started this whole last section of the book, it, it describes this. Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. So here's what they're doing. They're trying to worship these pagan gods that are around them, trying to fit in with the cultures that are around them. 
and God sends these two groups against them. Now, we were dealing with the Ammonites. Again, if you look at the map, those are the ones on the east side of the Jordan River. That was chapters 10 through 12 of the book and the judge uh, Jephthah that the Lord, the Lord raised up. Now we're turning to the Philistines on the west. And this group becomes a problem for Israel all the way up until the reign of King David. Uh, sometime after this, the Philistines are the major threat. Now what we notice here in this uh, account in, in chapter 13 is that God raises up this uh, country to oppress them and what do we not find them doing? We do not find them calling out for help. That's been the pattern throughout this book. Every time God has sent an oppressor against them, then they cry out for help, and then eventually God sends a deliverer. But that cry is not there this time. And the implication is they've reached a level of oppression and a comfort level with their sin that they're willing to live with it. Uh, they're saying, okay, this level of sin, this level of servitude, I can live with. And so this is why we're saying that this is showing apathy on their part. And when we get later in this account of Samson's life, you're actually going to see where the Israelite leaders are not happy with Samson because he's sort of messing up the status quo. They want, they're happy enough with the status quo uh, because they've, they've found a comfortable place in their apathy. I don't know how many of you enjoyed the heat dome that we experienced last week, uh, where you walk outside and it feels like someone's blowing a hot uh, hair dryer in your face. Um, not a great way to start the school year. And what I find so interesting is it just made it like you just did not want to go outside. You guys that work outside, I don't know how, I don't know how you did that last week uh, because I was just hiding inside. But the heat dome, right, it just saps your will to do what you would normally do, just takes it away. And that's what sin does with our relationship with God. Sin in our life, as we harbor it in our life, as we hang on to it in our life, it just sucks the life out of our spiritual, uh, our spiritual walk with God. And it breeds apathy. Uh, I put some cross-references in the outline there. Psalm 66, verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. So here's the psalmist uh, hanging on to his sin, then experiencing this, God's not listening to me, God won't hear me when I pray, and, and, and realizing how this... This affects the spiritual life. Psalm 119, verse 11, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's the attitude that we ought to have, that we're, we're taking in the word of God. We're seeking to fight sin in our life and we're growing. And these things were not happening in Israel at this time. And my guess is for some of you, they're not happening in your own life. You're not hungry for God's word. You're not trying to hide God's word in your own life. You've you're sort of reached a comfortable equilibrium where you can go through your routine. You've got God kind of off to the side, not really impinging on your, uh, your agenda and what you want to do very much. And this is a very unhealthy place to be. And as we get lazy in our spiritual life, this apathy sets in 
And this can cause tremendous damage. And that's what the Israelites were dealing with here. So sin in your life breeds spiritual apathy. Secondly, we see in this text that you are helpless to overcome this apathy on your own. So now uh, we, we, we talk about the general situation of Israel in verse 1. In verse 2, we focus in on one particular family, now a certain man. And this, ma- this one family is like a microcosm of this apathy and this helplessness. We're told that this man named Manoah, that means rest, uh, it's a derivative of the name Noah, that he's from the tribe of Dan. And uh, the Danites are an interesting group. We're going to come back to them later in this book. But many of the Danites uh, left the, an area of their inheritance and went to the far north. And if you look on the map, you can see a, a city of Dan way at the top. And this becomes uh, proverbial when, when uh, sometimes Israel is described, they'll say, from Dan to Beersheba, from the very north to the very south. Well, this... Uh, this Danite was one of the remnant that didn't go up to the north. He's still down there uh, uh, by the Philistines. And so that's where he is. And, uh, and uh, he's, he's living with his wife. Now we learn something about the wife in the second half of verse 2. Uh, she is barren and has no children. Uh, so the word there means sterile. means there's no hope of having children. Uh, it's not that they haven't tried. They have tried. And the Lord is not bringing children into their family. There's no hope of new life coming into this situation. Now we're going to talk about this heavenly visitor who visits here in a minute, her in a minute. But I want you to see right now that the text really highlights for us the sort of complete helplessness of this family, right? Why do we, this family is not going to turn around this problem of apathy that we've got going on in the nation. They are not the solution. Um, uh, The heavenly visitor comes to the wife in verse three. He again highlights her helplessness. Indeed, now you are barren and you have no children. But notice that this is highly unusual that the heavenly visitor comes to the woman, doesn't come to the man. Uh, Then she goes and tells her husband what happens, and then he prays, okay, send the visitor back again so I can get the scoop straight from the horse's mouth, but where does the visitor come back? In verse 9, comes back to the woman again, and so then she has to go get Manoah, and then Manoah comes in and says, are you the man? You spoke to this woman uh, now explain it all to me. And the, uh, the heavenly visitor, visitor basically says, I already told her, do, do what I told her. And so he gets no new information at all. So then he decides, well, you can stay and eat with us. And he says, no, I will not accept your hospitality. Uh, but you can make an offering. Uh, so he does make an offering, all this time having no idea who this is he is interacting with. Tell me your name, uh, right? He will not tell him his name. And then finally, when this heavenly visitor goes up in the flame, you see Manoah in a panic in verse 22. We will die, we will die, we're, we're going to die, we've seen the Lord. And, and so in verse 23, his nameless wife is saying, okay, would he really have come here and promised to give us a child if he was just planning to kill us? Like, what, what is wrong with you? And um, sadly, right, we know that so many uh, television shows portray... Uh, the husband, the father, as this kind of complete dolt who the joke is always on him. He's this hapless individual in the family. Uh, 
And it's a very damaging stereotype. But there's a little bit of a sense in which, in this case, that is how this man is being presented to us. Especially if you consider what the cultural expectations of this time period were. This is to be the spiritual leader of his home. And we see a man who's like never quite able to catch up with what is going on in this whole scenario. He's way behind his wife on this. And, um, and, and, uh, and he doesn't get what's going on. But recognize, she's really not the answer either. She is barren. She cannot do anything on her own. In fact, th- several times here, both times that the angel speaks, he says to her, do not eat anything unclean. And we'll come back to this in a minute. But if she was following the law of God, then she would have known that already. Like, he wouldn't have to say to her, keep the, you know, keep the law and, and, and remain ceremonially clean. She would have been doing that. She clearly was not doing that. And, and so this is not a family that's walking faithfully with the Lord. Obviously, there's some respect and understanding there. In fact, the name Samson, we're not told who chose the name, means little son, S-U-N, and would be the kind of name more likely to be given by a pagan who would worship the son than uh, an Israelite. Uh, So again, the text is just highlighting for us, uh, these people are not really the solution, right? These are people that are helpless to fix this problem. And in many ways, they're people just like us. We're people we know less than we should. Our commitment is often half-hearted. We don't have any excuse. And there seems to be no way for us to fix it. I know uh, some of you out there have struggled. How can I be consistent in my Bible reading? How can I be consistent in my prayer life? How can I be consistent in witnessing to uh, the lost people around me? And we recognize that once we get into the ebb and flow of life, we just seem like we're not that interested in those things. And it can feel like we're helpless. Well, the good news is, in one sense, you are helpless if it's just left to yourself. But thirdly, we see here that God comes to you in your apathy and your helplessness with grace. So this is a wonderful thing about the passage, is that we see God taking the initiative. And in verse four, the, uh, 3, sorry, the angel comes and, yes, acknowledges her helpless situation, but then promises a son. So, children, that's the promise I, I want you to draw. Uh, they are promised that they are going to have a son. And what is this son going to do? Uh, verse 5 uh, tells us that the son is going uh, to begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. He is going to be a savior. Uh, you could also translate that word. And, and, and we need to recognize how amazing this is because no one has cried out and asked for help. They don't even want help, it doesn't seem like. And yet God sends them a savior anyway. One of the commentators I I read uh, titled this chapter, The Savior No One Asked For. And and, and it really highlights for us the grace of God. I I quote from one of the the commentators, Lawson Younger, he said, this intervention in the days of Samson demonstrates 
the tremendous long-suffering grace of God so that in spite of Israel's lack of response, he will act purely out of faithfulness to his covenant with them. He is going to do the work. And recognize here, who is it that he sends to the woman? So the woman describes him as a man of God. She thinks he's a prophet of some sort, although she does say he almost looks like an angel. But if we ask ourselves, who is scripture is the angel of the word of the Lord with the definite article. One of the reasons the New King James translation, which I was reading from, capitalizes that and every uh, pronoun associated with it capitalizes it is because it recognizes this is God himself. Uh, we saw this person back in Judges chapter 2 and I put one verse Uh, from verse 1 of chapter 2 in your outline. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And so we recognize this this angel is, is from God and is at the same time God. And the text really works hard to paint that picture for you. That's why he won't eat with them. Uh, but he will accept a burnt offering. That's why in verse 18, when he's asked his name, he says, why do you want to know that? Seeing it is wonderful. And that phrase is a little hard to translate. It could mean, uh, my name is too wonderful for you to understand it. Like this is beyond you. But it could also be translated that he's saying to them, I am he who works wonders. I am the God who works wonders. And then he goes ahead to Uh, to do this miracle where he disappears in the fire uh, from them and rises up. And they certainly know that they've seen God at the end of this exchange. So so Manoah is not wrong in, in crying out because he has seen God. And so who is the one who comes with the word of God who is also God himself? It is clearly the second person in the Trinity. This is the son of God. Uh, before the incarnation, before he takes on uh, human uh, flesh uh, in the incarnation. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. And what an incredible encouragement that is, that the Lord comes to his people even before they have asked for help. Uh, Ralph Davis, in speaking about this, says, if Yahweh's help were given only when we prayed for it, only when we asked for it, Only when we had sense enough to seek it, what paupers and orphans we would be. And that is so true. First week of class, I'm teaching a lab class. Uh, So I explain uh, what we're going to be doing and we talk a lot of logistics because we're going to be spending a semester in close proximity doing experiments. So the first quiz uh, to get ready for this lab, some of the questions have to do with the syllabus. If you want to get the maximum credit for your lab participation, what things should you do, what things should you not do? Uh, One of the distractors I put on there is, when you don't know what we're doing, just go with your gut. That is the absolute worst thing. Anyone who's been in a lab knows this. No, don't go with your gut. Don't do anything. Ask for help. If you're confused, do not do what just feels like it makes sense to you. I guarantee you it will be wrong. I've been doing this long enough to know that. But how often is that the way we approach things in our lives, right? 
Just do what feels right to you. What feels right to you is probably not right. Don't do that. Seek God's help. Seek input from godly believers. This is a tremendous blessing, right, to have a Christian spouse or a Christian friend, someone who knows you uh, sometimes better than yourself that you can go and ask advice for and get help from. And this is the wonderful thing that this text is reminding you, that you have a God who knows you perfectly, knows you way better than you know yourself. And he comes to you, even in your apathy, to try to wake you out of it and to minister his grace to you. It's such a blessing. This is our Sunday school class. We were talking about the covenants. And and this is a beautiful picture here of, of what we get in Genesis 15, where God has Abraham cut the animals in two and lay the pieces down. And then God, this flaming torch, goes between the pieces. God's saying, I'm going to keep both halves of this arrangement. I know you can't keep your half. And that's what's going on here, where God comes to these people, not because they've asked for help, they're clueless in that, but because he's keeping both sides of his covenant. He's being faithful to them. And basically what we see here is the perfect heavenly judge coming to this poor, barren couple to help begin the process of saving them. It reminds us of what we're told in 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God comes to us. Fourthly, though, we see God's particular situation here for your apathy is to send a savior who's completely dedicated to serving God, a completely devoted savior. So we're going to talk a lot more in the future about Samson and his exploits. One commentator uh, describes his exploits as they look like the actions of an uncontrollable juvenile delinquent. And we get into the future, okay? So we're really going to have to think through how uh, this all works out. And there's, I think, a lot more going on there than we give credit for. But what we see here, it's repeated three times in this chapter, is that he is going to be a Nazarite from his birth. He's going to be dedicated to God. I put number six, one and two in the outline. And if you want to read number six, the first 21 verses describe what it means to be a Nazarite. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when either a man or a woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord. So uh, that's all I'm going to say about it right now. But recognize it's, it's, it's a dedicating of oneself to service of the Lord. And this was a voluntary thing that was done for a, for a set period of time. And there were three parts to this vow. One was that you would then avoid any fruit of the vine, any alcoholic wine or anything like that. You would avoid ritual uncleanliness, especially contact with a dead body. So in other words, you have to act like a priest in that regard. And then thirdly, you would not cut your hair. So those are the three stipulations. But the idea is you're going to embrace a life of service to the Lord for some set period of time. And these stipulations are repeated three times in this chapter. This is what is so important about this. But note what's different. Because Samson is not voluntarily taking this on himself. God is putting him under 
this situation. And then secondly, this is not for a set period of time. This is for his entire life. And it begins literally before his conception. Like sidebar, life clearly begins at conception. We're worried about what his mom drinks and eats so that that doesn't affect him in the womb. Affect what? Not his physical health, his holiness and his dedication to the Lord. He's dedicated to serving the Lord even in the womb. And this is a picture of of complete and utter devotion to the Lord. And so recognize how this is exactly what apathetic people need. Apathetic people need a savior who's completely dedicated. They're not dedicated. They need a savior who's completely dedicated to serving the Lord for the entire entirety of his life. And in verse 5, we're told at the end of that verse, he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. He is going to be their savior. Uh, Commentator Barry Webb says, beneath all the surface chaos and mad careening here and there of the wild man hero, there is a steady building toward a predetermined end of profound theological significance. Samson is God's man as Israel is his people and neither he nor they can finally escape their destiny. I saw an article this week just sort of talking about the demise of our culture and saying that at present rates uh, our population, less than 50% of our population will even profess to be uh, Christian. Uh, by the 2030s. And so we are in the middle of a massive shift in the history of our nation. And it's going to make things way more complicated. Way more complicated, I think, in the future. And I think there's a sense in which we would sit here and say, yes, what we need is a strong leader. We need a fighter. Someone who's going to fight. But what God is saying to you in this text is that what you need is a holy leader, one who is 100% dedicated to serving God. Because as we go through this story, Samson's greatness is not going to be his physical strength. It's not going to be whether he can use weapons really well. It's going to be the extent to which he is dedicated and faithful to serving God. Now, you know, spoiler alert, right? He, he doesn't fulfill what we would hope, right? But at this point, right, this is what God is saying. You need a servant who is dedicated to God. And yes, if he's a fighter, fantastic. But it's that dedication to God that is at the heart of this. Samson is so unique among the judges. He never has an army. He never has anyone. It's not, it's not even like Batman and Robin. There's no Robin. There's nobody with him. He's totally alone in the work that he does. And yet God uses him to stir his people out of their apathy. God's solution, send a savior who's completely devoted to God. And so finally, we see that Jesus Christ is that dedicated servant who enables you to break free from your apathy. Right, so at the end of the day, what's going to wake you up out of your own apathy? Are you going to make 
come out of this sermon and make a to-do list. That's what I'm going to do, make a to-do list. And I'm just going to try harder. And uh, if that's what you're taking away from this, you're going to be frustrated. Because that's not the point. Uh, The point is to look and to see that it is God who supplies that deliverer for you. It's not about us grabbing ourselves by the bootstraps and working harder. It's about us believing what the Bible tells us about Jesus and turning to him in faith. You see how this, pa- this chapter ends. The woman bore a son in verse 24 and it, called his name Samson. And the child grew and the Lord blessed him and the spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. Here's the, here's the servant. The son comes and he grows and God blesses him and he's empowered by the Holy Spirit. And I didn't check with uh, Ken, who was teaching us on types last week, but I feel pretty confident that this is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. This points us, the shadows point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you think about it, a miraculous birth that's foretold by a messenger from heaven, a life that's devoted to God's service that begins in the womb, one who's empowered, full, of the Holy Spirit. A son of promise who saves his people. He will be rejected and betrayed by his own people. He will be captured and tortured and condemned by foreigners and he will win the victory through his death. It's not an accident that Samson's life plays out this way because he's pointing us to the greater Samson, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus did all those things, but he didn't have the moral baggage that Samson is going to have. Jesus was not compromised morally. And whereas Samson only begins to save the people, Jesus saves his people from first to last. He saves us completely. As the scripture tell us in Hebrews 7 verse 25, Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. A holy, a holy savior who saves us to the uttermost. There's nothing left for us to do. And there's something interesting in this text because the angel comes to Mrs. Manoah, we never get her name, and says to her, He needs to be a a Nazarite from the womb. But look at how she describes it to her husband in verse 7. He said to me, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. I mean, as far as we know, the angel didn't say anything about the day of his death. But it's almost as if she knows you can't come into the world and be completely dedicated to serving God without things ending badly. And this is so similar to what is said of Mary by Simeon in the temple. When Mary takes the baby Jesus into the temple and Simeon sees the baby and says to her, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, 
and the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Mary had to suffer to be the mother of the Lord. This woman is going to suffer to be the mother of Samson. The reason this has to happen is because you cannot save apathetic people who need saving. You cannot save them unless you come and you enter into their experience and you pay the penalty for their sins. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us. He took the punishment that we deserve. He took it on himself. And he freed us from that. And he's given us life and his spirit. So that in him, we actually have all that we need to break free from the apathy that binds us. And so we need to turn toward him. To turn toward him in faith and to see what he's done for us. To embrace him as your savior if you've never done that. But if you have, to look and see who he is. The great deliverer. He lived 33 years on the earth completely given over to the service of God every minute of his life so sinners like us could be forgiven. So maybe this is the year. I I saw our, our bulletin is amazing how much stuff is in it nowadays. Maybe this is the year that you try a mission trip or an outreach event or a new study group or a discipleship program or helping in the nursery or speaking out to an unbelieving coworker or any of number of things or just pick up your Bible and see what God would say to you. You can do that because God has sent a 100% committed servant uh, to deliver us. And in him, we can turn from our apathy. Let's pray and let's ask his help. Heavenly Father, how we rejoice in our Savior Jesus, who came as the deliverer into the world to save apathetic people, people who... uh, didn't even have what it took to cry out for help. Lord, we confess that all too often we're comfortable with our sin, we're comfortable with a certain level of oppression, and uh, we just rather not be disturbed. And we thank you for your great mercy that you don't leave us in that condition, but that you come to us, you initiate, and you come to us to keep your covenant. And you've sent your son into the world to deliver apathetic people by being completely devoted to you. And we thank you, Lord, that Jesus paid for our sin and has given us life. And we pray that in him, Lord, you would encourage us and help us. Uh, Lord, help us to turn from our apathy and to serve you as those who've been saved by our great deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name, amen. And now let's sing back to the Lord, praising him from Psalm 119, and we'll use selection H. My portion is the Lord himself. I'll keep your words, my vow will be. So as we understand who God is, he is our portion, he is our source of joy. Then uh, by his grace, we turn uh, to keep his word uh, with all of our heart. We obey because of the grace that he gives us. Let's stand and sing our praise.